All right, I'd like you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Genesis, again, chapter 41, and uh, we'll stand together and we'll sing our hymn, and then we'll read the scripture, and then we'll let you be seated. Genesis, chapter 41. I want to ask the Lord to help us this morning as we look into His Holy Word. Father, I stretch my hand to you. No If you've got your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 41, we're going to read beginning in verse 45. Genesis 41, verse 45. Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zathnath Paaniah, and he gave him to wife Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. And Joseph went out all over the land of Egypt. And Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. May the Lord add his blessings to the reading of his word and let God's people say praise the Lord. And you may be seated let me encourage you again this morning, ladies and gentlemen, really make it a habit to invite one person a week, at least one person a week. I wouldn't tell you to make a covenant with the Lord, but if you're moved to do that, you'll probably be faithful to it. Be faithful to your covenant to make with the Lord. Lord, help me to invite at least one person this week to worship with us at Grace Church at Franklin. All right, I think we need to move this, Brother Turner. <laughs> uh, is this microphone on here? Okay. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I believe the Bible and the original autographs were inspired of God. I believe they were fully inspired of God. And I also believe, as I repeatedly tell you, that the Bible is a hymn book, that it reveals him. That means that every single thing we have revealed in the Scripture can teach us something about him, something about our Lord Jesus Christ. So I hope you have a Bible with you this morning. Uh, if you don't, maybe you can find one in the pew. Perhaps we need to order uh, some Bibles. We've sent some Bibles overseas to Africa. Maybe we need to order about 50 Bibles and put them in our pews so that everybody will have a Bible and you can follow along. If you went to your math class, you'd be uh, really remiss 
if you didn't have your, your mathematics book with you or your English uh, class, if you didn't have your English book with you, and you need to have the Bible because that's what we're doing here is studying the Bible. I'm not called to impress anyone. I'm not called to entertain anyone. I'm not called to talk you into joining a church. I'm called to teach the Scripture, to teach the Word of God, and that's what I've been endeavoring to do for lo these many years. So this morning, let's look at Joseph's wife. We're going to consider his wife. You notice here in verse 45 that the Pharaoh gave Joseph a new name, Zathnath-Paaneah, and he gave to him a wife, Asenath, the daughter of a priest of On called Potipharah. Now, in the manner in which I'm accustomed, let me review for you where we've been. Joseph has been delivered from prison. He's been promoted to the position of governor of Egypt, and he's been given a new name, Zathnath Paaneah. And as we saw in our last study, his new name has three literal meanings. First, it may be interpreted revealer of secrets. Secondly, it may be interpreted savior of the world. And thirdly, from the Egyptian hieroglyphics, it may be interpreted wise man fleeing from pollution. Now, this new name given to Joseph speaks to us about two persons. Joseph speaks to us, his wife speaks to us, Joseph and his life speak to us. But this new name speaks to us about two persons. One, the child of God, and number two, the Messiah. Jesus, I mean, Joseph is himself a child of God, and he is a representative of every child of God. As the governor of Egypt, he is a beautiful picture or a beautiful type of the Messiah, the Christ, whom we believe to be Jesus. So let's quickly review the three meanings of his new name. First, his name means the revealer of secrets. And I explained to you last week that like Joseph, Jesus is our Savior, and he has revealed secrets. The greatest secret that the Lord Jesus has revealed is a knowledge of the invisible and sovereign God, the greatest mystery of all. How can one know God? You can only know God through the Lord Jesus Christ. As it is recorded in John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. But Joseph is also a picture, he's also a type of every child of God. Just like the Lord showed Joseph the future, he has given us some information about the future. He has given us information that we might prepare for time, for death, and for eternity while the world remains in ignorance and unbelief. And you know, this is something the Lord has done throughout history. He told Abraham, he said, your descendants are going to be in Egypt for over 400 years. He told Abraham that about the future, probably to encourage him. Then he told Noah that a flood was coming, and he gave him instructions by which he could escape that flood. 
and he's done the same thing for us. He has shown us certain things that are coming upon the world, and he has told us how we may prepare for them. So I'm asking you this morning, are you prepared? Are you prepared for time? Are you prepared for death? Are you prepared for eternity? Are you prepared for what may be coming upon this world, even in our generation? In the second place, Zathnathpaneah means the savior of the world. Of course, it's not hard to see that Joseph is going to be the savior of the world of Egypt. And our Lord Jesus Christ is the savior of the entire world. But we, like Joseph, have become the means of the salvation of the world through the telling of the gospel. It has pleased God not only to call us by his grace, but to make us witnesses to the world. Our Lord Jesus said, go into all the world and teach the gospel, teach the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So we have been delivered from judgment, and we have been delivered from the coming judgment, but we've been assigned the task of telling others what the Lord has done for us. Finally, Zathnathpaneia means wise man fleeing from pollution. And of course, Joseph kept himself pure before the Lord. He didn't resort to deception or to treachery or to covetousness or to revenge. Just like our Savior, of whom it is, of which, of whom it is written, he suffered for us, living us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. He did no sin, neither was any guile found in his mouth. Joseph not only uh, was delivered, Pharaoh rather, not only delivered Joseph from prison, and he made him governor of the land, but he also gave him a wife. And that's what we're going to be today. And I think I have some things, some secrets that most people are not aware of, though they are plainly seen in the scripture. Most people bypass them. But there's some significance about what we're going to study today as it relates to our salvation. Now, you notice that her name is Asenath, and she is the daughter of a priest, the priest of On, Potipharah. So Joseph immediately, in his promotion, he enjoys an alliance with a family of high distinction. Now, the Jewish people try to say that maybe this uh, Potiphera might have been like Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. Any of you remember Jethro? Well, Jethro was a, a priest of Midian, but he was a worshiper of the true God. And the Jewish people, in order to get Joseph off the hook, you say, Why, what do you mean get Joseph off the hook? Well, his wife, is, as we're going to see, is... She is the daughter of a man who is a pagan priest. So his wife is a pagan, and something else I'll tell you about in just a minute. Here's what I know for sure about Joseph's wife. Number one, she was a Gentile. Number two, she was a pagan. Number three, she became the mother of Joseph's two children. Ephraim, and Manasseh. And number four, she was Joseph's 
only wife. Unlike many of the men in the Old Testament, David had what? Five wives? How many did Solomon have? 700 wives, 300 concubines, and we call him a wise man. Jacob. Jacob had two wives and two concubines, not of his own doing. But out of that, he, he had 12, 12, 12 children that became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. So let's spend some time this morning looking at some passages, and let me tell you what I think are some of the things that the Lord is teaching us about giving Joseph a Gentile pagan wife. First of all, this woman represents the bride of the Messiah. According to the Bible, the bride of the Messiah will be a Gentile. Many debate whether or not the bride of Christ includes those who are the physical seed of Abraham. I wish we didn't have so much complicated uh, doctrine because I have to stop and explain things all the time. But you see, there are people who say, look, the Gentiles are in the bride of Christ and the Jews are like the friend of the bride. They don't want to put them in the bride. They want to make a distinction between the Jews who are saved and between the Gentiles who are saved. Well, this might be a moot point. You know, a moot point is a point for which no satisfactory answer may be found. But we know this. We know the first converts to Christ, the first converts to the church on the day of Pentecost, when you can read about in Acts chapter 2, were physical Jews. So we know the Jews there in Acts chapter 2 were in the church, and the scripture says that God added to the church such as should be saved. So I'm not going to fuss with anybody about whether Jews or Gentiles. I think the bride of Christ is made up of sinners who are saved, whether they're Jewish sinners or Gentile sinners. Now, some people think that all of the folks brought to a knowledge of the true, one true and living God, that all of those people, both Old Testament and New Testament, are in the church. Because the word ecclesia, which is translated church, may be translated the called out ones. Even so, whatever your viewpoint might be, the vast majority of that number making up the bride of Christ are Gentiles. Okay? Number two, the bride of Christ is made up of converted pagans. Those who worshiped themselves or some other god, everybody that comes to Christ was a pagan. Now hang on for just a minute. Even Abraham, the spiritual father of the Jewish people, the spiritual father of all believers, even Abraham is not exempt here. Listen to this. Now, if you want to turn to these passages, you can. I'll tell you what let's do. You got the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then you got the book of Joshua. So see if you can find the book of Joshua very quickly and turn to chapter 24. It's the sixth book in the Bible. 
Joshua, the sixth book in the Bible, and turn to chapter 24. Joshua, chapter 24. And while you're turning, here's my point. The people who are in the body of Christ are Gentiles, and they are pagans. That is, they were converted pagans. You understand me? You follow me? They're Gentiles, and they are converted pagans. Now listen to this. Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. Joshua said to all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood. It's up on the board for you if you can't find it in your Bible. Even Terah, who is the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. All right? Now look at verse 3. And I took your father. God says, I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood when they were serving other gods. And I led them throughout all the land of Canaan, and I multiplied his seed, and I gave him Isaac. Now I go to verse 14, same chapter, verse 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood, and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. Now verse 15, verse 15, 24, 15. If it seem evil to you, these are Joshua's words, some of his final words to his brothers in Israel. If it seem evil to you to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Watch this now. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, are the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's a, a translation of Jehovah. We will serve Jehovah. We will serve Jehovah who is the God of Israel. Now listen, hope you have your seatbelts on. Here's a remarkable fact that's often ignored. Turn to Romans chapter 4. You can find that in the New Testament. Romans chapter 4. And I'll tell you the verses in just a moment. But here's a remarkable fact that's often overpassed. It's passed over. And this is this. Before Abraham was called, he was a pagan. He was a worshiper of other gods, but not only that, he was a Gentile. Abraham was a Gentile before he was circumcised. Now turn to Romans chapter 4. Now in this chapter, Paul is teaching us regarding salvation by grace. You know, I've often said Romans chapter 1 is... The Gentiles are sinners, Romans chapter 2. The Jews are sinners, Romans chapter 3. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
So now once he lays out the bad news in the first three chapters and says nobody escapes here, whether you're Gentiles or Jews, then in chapter 4 he begins to talk to us about this doctrine of imputation, how Christ being our substitute was charged with our sins and that we, when we come to faith in him, we come to an assurance that he has charged us with his righteousness. Okay? So that's what he's talking about here. Now in Romans chapter 4, look at verse 6. David describes the blessedness of the man. I, I preached to you from these verses a few weeks ago. David describes the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputes righteousness without works. In other words, God doesn't count you righteous because of some work you have done or perhaps because of some evil you haven't done, but he imputes it to you freely by his grace, saying, verse 7, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute or charge with sins. Verse 9, now watch this, verse 9, Coming, cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also. Now, the circumcision refers to the Jews, the uncircumcision refers to the Gentiles. For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. Verse 10. How was it then reckoned? More accurately, when was it reckoned? When was Abraham counted righteous by God? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Then he answers the question. Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. Abraham was counted righteous when he was a Gentile. He was counted righteous before he was ever circumcised. All right, now watch this. Verse 11, and he received the sign of... Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision. In other words, anytime Abraham wanted to remember whether or not he had a covenant with God or not, he was reminded by the circumcision that he was counted righteous with God. But it is very important that you understand for our study today that Abraham was counted righteous while he was a Gentile. Now let me read these same verses from the English translation. Let me see if it doesn't help you. I think it will help you understand. I've tried to explain, but listen to this. Happy are those whose wrongs are forgiven, whose sins are pardoned. Happy is the person whose sins the Lord will not keep account of. Does this happiness that David spoke of belong only to those who are circumcised, the physical children of Abraham? No. No, indeed. It belongs also to those who are not circumcised, the Gentiles. For we have quoted the scripture that says Abraham believed God, and because of his faith, God accepted him as righteous. When did this take place? 
Was it before or after Abraham was circumcised? It was before, not after. He was circumcised later, and his circumcision was a sign to show that because of his faith, God had accepted him as righteous before he had been circumcised. And so Abraham is the spiritual father of all who believe and are accepted as righteous even though they are not circumcised. So we learn from this, let me repeat, number one, Abraham was born a pagan. He was born into a family that worshipped other gods. Number two, Abraham was born a Gentile. He wasn't born circumcised. He wasn't born a Jew. He was born a Gentile. He wasn't circumcised in his flesh, and he wasn't circumcised in his heart when he was born. The Lord repeatedly said through the law of Moses to Israel, Oh, that your hearts were circumcised. You've been circumcised outwardly, but your heart has not been circumcised. When you have a new heart, that's called the circumcision of the heart. When you're a new person, when you've been born again, when you've been made a new creature in Christ Jesus. Abraham was born a pagan. Abraham was born a Gentile, not circumcised in heart or flesh. Number three, Abraham believed God when he was a Gentile. Thus, number four, Abraham was declared righteous when he was a Gentile before he was circumcised. And this means, number five, circumcision did not make Abraham righteous. If you notice in verse 11, it was only a sign of his righteousness. Only a sign. And this word translated sign, semion, I wrote it down, says, that by which a person, place, or thing is distinguished from others. Hitler, in World War II, would make men strip down without any clothes so he could pick out the Jews because the Jews were circumcised. Okay? And number seven, Abraham is the physical father of his physical descendants, and he is the spiritual father of all who believe, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Okay? So Joseph's wife, Asenath, was a Gentile, and she is a pagan, and thus she is a beautiful picture of the bride of Christ. Now I'm going to give you three examples. First, the genealogy of our Savior. If you turned to Matthew's gospel, you'll find a genealogy that is a line of people that Jesus was related to, related to him. You'll find the family tree of our Savior in the gospel of Matthew. And in that genealogy, in that list of descendants, five women are listed. Now listen carefully now. The first one is Tamar, the second one is Rahab, the third one is Ruth, the fourth one is Bathsheba, and the last one, the fifth one, is Mary, the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now listen to this. Ruth, Ruth is a Moabite. Rahab is a Canaanite. Bathsheba is a Hittite. And Tamar is a Canaanite. Only Mary, the mother of Jesus, is an Israelite. All of those people are Gentile pagans in the bride of Christ, related to the Lord Jesus Christ. So they got the genealogy of the Savior witnesses to this. Number two, the teachings of our Savior. Turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, we find that the Lord Jesus was tempted of the devil. The chapter begins that way, being full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. All right, now, in this chapter, verse 14, Luke 4, 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. And he taught, verse 15, in their synagogues, being glorified of all. Verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. He came to his hometown. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now what they did, just like Dr. Foster came up today and read scripture and prayed, we got that from the Jewish synagogue. That was their form of worship. They'd have somebody read the scripture, except in many cases the rabbi would determine what scripture was to be read. So he gave a scroll to the Lord Jesus, and it was the scroll of the book of Isaiah. He stood up to read. Verse 17, there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, or Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Now, he found what we call our Isaiah chapter 61. And this is what it says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to preach deliverance to the captives, to recover sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now it goes on in Isaiah 61, if you go back and read it, it starts talking about the judgment of God. He didn't read that. He didn't read that part. I think that's for two reasons. Number one, he came to bear that judgment. And all for whom he bore that judgment are going to be saved. They're going to be freed. But secondly, he came to bring the good news, and they, he knew they wouldn't understand that about the judgment, so he stopped reading right there. Now, he closed the book, verse 20, and he gave it to the minister, and he sat down. And the way he read that, <laughs> and, the, and what he said everybody's eyes were fixed on him, verse 20. They weren't paying attention to anything else. The Lord Jesus was mesmerizing his presence. He was full of the Spirit of God because he was the Son of God. 
and they were just mesmerized by him. And everybody followed him and, and, and looked at him, and, and he sat down. And then he began to say something to them. This day, verse 21, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. This scripture that I just read, that Isaiah said many hundreds of years ago, he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, sent me to heal the broken hearted, preach deliverance to the captive, recover the sight of the blind, set at liberty to them to the bruised. This day, all of those promises are fulfilled in your ears, this very day. You're looking at the one who's going to fulfill these promises. You're looking at the one who's going to recover sight to blind people, not only physically blind, but spiritually blind. You're looking at the one who's going to bring people out of prison. You're looking at the one who is going to heal the brokenhearted. Their hearts will be broken because of sin. You're looking at the one who's going to deliver the captives. They're going to realize that they've been captive and bound in Satan's prison and held captive by darkness and ignorance. I'm going to set them free. This day, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. And all, verse 22, all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words proceeded out of his mouth. And they basically said, we haven't seen this guy's name in the newspaper. I hadn't read about him in the Jerusalem Gazette or the Jerusalem Post. He hasn't taught in any of our universities. Isn't this Joseph's son, that guy down there that's a carpenter? That's what it says right here, verse 22. Then he began to say, you will surely say to me, one of these days, and it's just a short time, you're going to say to me, physician, heal thyself. That's what they said to him when he was on the cross. If you're the son of God, save yourself. Save yourself and we'll believe. Come down from the cross and we'll believe. Heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. Then he goes on and he says, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Then he says this, I tell you a truth. Very important, verse 25. There were many widows in Israel. Let me translate that. There were many Jewish widows. In the days of Elias, he's going to mention two prophets in these passages, Elijah and Elisha. And he says, there were many Jewish widows in Israel when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months. In other words, it didn't rain for three and a half years. They were in famine. It was drying up. People were going crazy because they didn't have any water. Famine was throughout the land. Many Jewish widows. But, verse 26, unto none of them was the prophet Elias sent except unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, and a woman that was a widow. Now, I'll give you one guess about this woman. Was she a Jew or a Gentile? She's a Gentile. He said he passed by all the Jewish widows in Israel, and he sent the prophet to a Gentile, and he took care of her. 
Then he says, and there were many Jewish lepers, verse 27. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of Eliseus, Elisha, the prophet. And none of them was cleansed but Naaman the Syrian. He passed all the Jewish lepers and he cleansed a Syrian, a Gentile, of leprosy. Remember the story about Naaman when he was told to go down and dip in the Jordan River seven times? And he got mad. Oh my goodness, we got, we got rivers back where I came from better than this river. I'm not going down there and jump in that river. Jump in the river? Not one time, but dip myself seven times? No, sir. The scripture says he turned on his heel to go home. And one of his boys that did his errands for him came up to him and said, Master, let me say something to you. If he had asked you to do some big thing, wouldn't you have done it? How much more simple when he just says, go down to the water and dip yourself. Now, Naaman said to uh, the servant that brought him, you see, when Naaman got there, when he got to where the prophet lived, the prophet didn't even come out to see him. Now, he wouldn't have made a good pastor today. Now, the pastor didn't shake my hand. The pastor never comes to visit me. The pastor didn't see anything. Elijah didn't even go out to see him. He just sent a boy out there and said, tell him to go jump down there in that river seven times and he'll be clean. And he said, another by and Pathar, the great rivers where I come from, better. I thought he would come out and strike him, strike his hand on the leprosy and recover it. I thought the reporters would be here, ABC, NBC, Fox, and everybody else, and I thought he would do something dramatic. And that's when he turned to go back, and that's when this young man came up and said, look, if he had asked you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? What's it going to hurt to go down there and dip in the water in the Jordan River seven times? And he went down and he dipped in the Jordan River, and his leprosy was cleansed when he came up the seventh time. The seventh time. There's a whole message in that, but we're not, we're not going to get into that today. But the point I'm making to you is this widow in Sarepta, to which the prophet was sent, was a Gentile, and this man here that had leprosy, verse 27, he was a Gentile. Now, would you say that if the Lord told you that, and you were a Jew, and you were in the synagogue, that you'd say, well, praise the Lord. I'm glad he saved somebody. I'm glad he healed somebody. No, the Jews were infuriated. Watch this. Verse 28. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. You mean to tell me that the Bible says that God bypassed a Jewish widow and saved and provided for a Gentile woman? You mean he bypassed all the lepers in Israel and he made a Syrian clean? Oh, they didn't want that. Because you see, today even the Jews believe that they're children of God because they're Jews. And they don't realize that when Abraham was counted righteous, it was before he was a Jew, it was when he was a Gentile. That he might be the father of Jews and Gentiles, the spiritual father. 
Watch this now. And they thrust him out of the city, verse 29, and led him to the brow of the hill wherein the city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. They were going to push him off the mountain and kill him right there. He infuriated his Jewish audience by showing from the scriptures that he quoted from the scripture. He's not just making something up. He showed them from the scripture that the God of Abraham bypassed many lepers in Israel and he bypassed many Jewish widows in Israel during the time of famine to bless a Gentile woman in the city of Sarepta which is a heathen village between Tyre and Sidon. All right, here's the third evidence about this uh, Gentile bride. Uh, I'm going to quote several passages for you, and if you want to turn to some of them, you can, but I'll tell you where they are in just a moment. The writings of the Apostle Paul. Paul was a Jewish rabbi. He called himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was full of zeal. He persecuted Christians. He put them in jail. He caused some of them to be put to death. He was there holding the coat of people who threw stones at Stephen, one of the first Christian deacons, and killed him. It's re- recorded for you in the book of Acts. And, and Saul, or Saul of Tarsus, was converted, and he became the one we call Paul the Apostle. Now, he wrote extensively of a great mystery, a mystery That's a secret kept from the world, and in particular, this secret has been kept from Israel. What is a mystery? A mystery is a divine truth that cannot be discovered by human logic, by ingenuity, and by intelligence. It's a divine truth that can only be known and believed by revelation. Now, Paul... I'm going to mention passages to you. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, talks about the marriage of a man and a woman, the union of marriage. But when he finishes that section, instructing men to love their wives and, men, and women to be submissive unto their husband, he, he ends on this note. Listen to this now. Ephesians 5, verse 32. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. He said there's a union that exists between a man and a woman that is a picture of the union that exists between Christ and the church. And he said this is a great mystery. How Christ and the ecclesia, the called out ones, are one is a great mystery illustrated in marriage. The blindness of Israel is a major cog in this mystery. Listen to this, Romans 11, verse 25. Romans eleven twenty-five. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, lest you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceit that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. He says, this is a mystery. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. The gospel itself was a mystery whose meaning was kept secret. For example, how can God justify guilty men? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7 and verse 8. Listen to this. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. 
even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 7 and 8. He says, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. The hidden wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. He, Paul says, this is how you should think of me and other apostles. You should think of us as the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Ephesians 6, 19, Paul pled with believers to pray for him specifically. He says, pray for me that utterance may be given unto me. This is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19. That utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. I know people have said for the last hundred years, this is a simple gospel. No, there's nothing simple about it. There is no such thing as a simple gospel. When God, how can God be just and still justify the sinner who believes? That's a great mystery. We only know a little bit of it. Paul appealed to believers to hold on to the mystery of the gospel by means of a clear conscience. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 9, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. How can a man be saved? That's a mystery. And even a greater mystery is that, is the mystery of who Jesus Christ was. Who Jesus Christ was. I remember telling you years ago about two brothers. Both of them were preachers. One was a liberal, didn't believe the Bible would be the Word of God, and one was a conservative. And the liberal invited his conservative brother to speak for him one Sunday, but he said, I don't want anything controversial. The liberal said to his conservative brother, I'm going to let you speak, but nothing controversial. So the conservative got up and he picked, he picked this passage, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Without controversy, <laughs> great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. God was justified in the spirit. God was seen of angels. God was preached unto the Gentiles. God was believed on in the world. And God was received up in the glory. That's a mystery. A great part of this mystery kept secret was that God would redeem a people, both Jews and Gentiles, from every nation, every kindred, and every tongue, that he wouldn't just redeem Israel. Not just Israel, but he's going to redeem a people, both Jews and Gentiles from every nation, kindred, and tongue. And a large part of this mystery was the secret that the Messiah would have a Gentile bride. Now listen to this. Romans chapter 16, I'm going to read verses 25 and 26. Now to him that is power has power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, According to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but is now made manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for obedience of 
the faith. Now, the mystery of the will of God is revealed to all redeemed children of God, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 3, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. Now, Paul was a Jew. He has made known unto me the the mystery, as I wrote before to you in a few words, verse 4, Ephesians 3, verse 4, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. You see how much this word mystery and this idea of mystery is uh, mentioned? All right, now you turn to one passage. I'm going to read it to you, but it's Colossians. See if you can find the book of Colossians, chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, and I'll wind this up. Colossians chapter 1. Okay? Beginning in verse 25. I'm sorry. Yeah, verse, verse 25, I think. Let me make sure that I've got it right. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 25, I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even, verse 26, the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but is now made manifest to his saints. To his saints. God shows us some things. To whom God would make known, verse 27, what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man mature, your version might say perfect, that's mature, complete, in Christ Jesus, wherefore I also labor striving according to the working which works in me mightily. He says this mystery of Christ in you, using the Gentiles to turn around and witness to the Jews, this has all been a mystery. We're preaching something that is a mystery. That's why when we really open up the Word of God, we really open up the Scriptures, People cannot understand it. They will not understand it. They're not interested in understanding it unless God begins to deal with it. The ending of all things will be the finishing of this great mystery of God. Revelation chapter 10. I'm not going to read it. Revelation chapter 10 in verse 7. Now, let me ask you in closing, do you think that Joseph began to understand something of the mystery of God's will for him and for his family, I think he did. I think those two dreams that he had when he was 17, I think as providentially, all of a sudden he's whisked out of jail, he comes before the Pharaoh who believes every word that he says and says, I'm going to make you the governor. Joseph realized that could not happen except for a miracle of God's providence. The Lord himself began, I believe, to show Joseph the secret of his divine will and his providence.
he began to understand the wonderful providence of God working on his behalf. And my friends, the wonderful providence of God is still working today. By his grace, through his divine providence, the Lord is making up a bride. Once the apostle Paul said, the reason that I keep going, he said, is for the elect's sake. I'm asking you a question this morning. Have you trusted Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah? Do you understand that it is through faith in God's Messiah, in God's Son, that we are counted righteous with God? By His grace, through His providence, He's calling out people today to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, making up his bride, and my question in closing is, are you in that number who make up the bride of Christ? Joseph was given a bride, and God has given his son a bride. And I believe that as Joseph and his wife lived together, and she bore him his two sons, I believe Joseph taught her about the true God and the living God. But the fact of the matter is, she was a pagan and she was a Gentile. And every child of God that comes to Christ can trace themselves back somehow to Abraham, who was justified while he was a Gentile, and he had been born into a pagan family. May the Lord bless his uh, word this morning, and I think that is one of the great parts, uh, great significances about Joseph's Gentile pagan wife. I think it is put there to teach us something about our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether we Jewish or Gentile matters not. It's whether we believe on him, it's whether we come to him, it's whether we are found in him uh, uh, by faith, by the grace of God. Father, we call upon you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your unfathomable word. We thank you for the wonderful revelation and truths that are contained therein. Pray that you'll help us as we look into your word to understand it. We realize, Lord, that there are great mysteries that we know very little about. But we know that Jesus is your Son. We know that Jesus is the Son of God. We know that Jesus is God in the flesh. He had to be man that he could die. He had to be God that his death meant anything and could redeem a number which no man can number. Thank you for the wonderful truth of the gospel. Thank you for a little bit of the revelation of the great mystery of God in the flesh taking a lost people and bringing them unto himself, both Jews and Gentiles, to make up the great bride of Christ. We look forward to that day when we shall see him face to face, and we shall enter in to the great wedding feast of the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. We pray all these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.